to a new episode of uh, The Views from Down Under. I'm with the usual gang. Uh, Nick Koo from Otago University. Uh, June Chris Espia, who's joining us online today. Uh, Neil uh, Van Vary and Orson Tan. And I'm Alex Tan, your co-host uh, for this program. Today, uh, we have some very interesting uh, news and topics that we want to chat about. The first thing is... Uh, Where in the world is the former Chinese foreign minister? Uh, so what happened? And, you know, we're going to chat a little bit about that. And the second is the flurry of boy band summer tours to the South Pacific by Anthony Blinken, uh, Austin, Secretary Austin, uh, France uh, President Macron, and Anthony Albanese to New Zealand as well. So... This is like the uh, Backstreet Boys summer tour to the South Pacific. Uh, so in any case, uh, I thought it was really quite interesting to uh, first thing that I uh, noticed is that, hey, uh, Chin Gang, uh, the former Chinese foreign minister, has been dumped unceremoniously and in a way erased from the memory of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of China. So uh, what happened there? You know, what does it say about China? What does it say about Chinese foreign policy going forward? You know, I think it'll be quite interesting. Uh, let's go. Okay, well, just to kind of kick things off, uh, this does highlight very clearly that if we didn't know this previously, uh, the Chinese political system is not a liberal democratic one. It is a authoritarian political system. So that's not necessarily making a... Um, judgment either way, it's merely to state a fact, right? That structurally it's it's constructed in this way. Now, uh, should also be noted then uh, that the Chinese Foreign Minister, Qin Kang, uh, his uh, disappearance uh, from public view is not the first instance of a high-profile Chinese politician disappearing. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in 2013, Bo Xilai, Uh, you know, a uh, leading contender for a seat on the standing committee of the Politburo, the CCP, uh, was basically arrested and remains in prison. Mm -hmm. So it's not without precedent. And then subsequently, the next year, Zhou Yongkang, uh, you know, was actually on the uh, Politburo and he, he he disappeared or rather was arrested on uh, corruption charges, just like Bo Xilai. So we're dealing with a structural issue in the Chinese political system uh, that reflects the way the system is built. So um, as China has become much more prominent and powerful in the international system, um, this obviously has more effects on how the world sees China and how um, China affects the world. Um, now, at the same time, um, we do have to stop and ask ourselves, uh, okay, so this is a structural issue with the Chinese political system. Does it actually affect the foreign policy? And I think this is where looking at it from an international relations theory point of view uh, provides some interesting point of view. So for example, we're aware that, um, at least in the realist uh, theoretical perspective, there is a difference in the organizing principle between uh, domestic politics and 
uh, international politics or foreign policy. So what that means is that in any political system, the organizing principle is a, is one of hierarchy. But when it comes to foreign policy, it's, it's we're dealing with the structure of anarchy. That's the organizing principle. And so therefore, um, one would therefore say, if one adopts that view, that the effect of personnel changes such as this one will have minimal effects. Now, this is a hypothesis to be tested. It's yet to be seen. But a strong case can be made if you look at Chinese foreign policy over the decades. Shifts in personnel do not have uh, a particularly large effect, right? When we're not talking about the supreme leader in the case of Mao or Deng Xiaoping. We're talking about those who implement the policy, such as the, the foreign minister. And so the record here is that Chinese foreign policy hasn't been dramatically affected by changes in personnel. And this is a very important historical theoretical point that needs to be reiterated so that we do not overreact to uh, this particular event. Nevertheless, it is important in terms of the domestic politics of China to understand that uh, this system has its own structural weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In fact, so I'll just that, that, that's uh, you know, very, let you guys take it from there. Yeah, I think that's a very, very interesting point. And we can certainly pick up on this continuity of uh, Chinese uh, uh, foreign policy going forward, right? I mean, and as you know, for 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 those of us, uh, for those of us who are interested in you know what's happening over there, we also know that there is this dual track system in the Chinese uh, system. You have the party committee, yeah. and then you have the government ministries. And in a way, the party the party committee has quite a big sway in the policy, and oftentimes the minister and the ministry seems to be just implementor of uh, uh, party decisions. So in this case, you have uh, Wang Yi, who was in the Politburo, yep. uh, and kind of like a mentor mentor type uh, work. I've noticed, uh, I've noticed in China, for example, you have uh, universities where you have a president of a university, and you have a deputy president of a university, and mm -hmm. the deputy president normally is a party secretary, yeah. communist party secretary within the university. But then yeah. they have a board of regents, so to speak, wherein this deputy pr president, who is the party secretary, is now the chair of the board of regents, yeah. while the university president is a member of the board. So it's very interesting type of uh, relationship, right? So it's structural. And, and I yeah. would agree that the party has a lot of sway in this that that uh, pushes continuity, so to speak. Yeah, if I could just interject very quickly with a point. So this helps us understand some of the issues uh, that might otherwise puzzle us. So for example, in the Chinese system, the Minister of Defense doesn't has, have as much power as, for example, a Minister of Defense uh, or Defense Secretary in the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The party is in command. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and that's one reason why oftentimes the uh, uh, the state president, who's also the, the the chairman of the political party, holds the the chairmanship of the central military commission. Yep. Yeah. Right. And that's very very important for them. Yeah. Because if you read a lot of the analysts about this whole Tinkang affair, I feel like the actual affair has been overblown by the media. If you look mm. at the way the China's foreign ministry is structured, Tinkang itself as the foreign minister is not even a top ranking diplomatic post. Wang Yi, who sits on the Central Committee for Foreign Affairs Commission, he is the top diplomat in China. Well, you know, Qingkang reports to him. 
And he, yep. you know, Wang Yi moved from the Minister for Foreign Affairs and got promoted up there. Ching Kang got pushed up to 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 re, to replace him. And I think the reason why the media has kind of kind of really hyped this whole issue about Ching Kang going missing and then getting fired and all that is because of how spectacular or the perceived spectacular rise of Ching Kang. Ching Kang, that's right. Mm. Because right. he's come from literally almost from nowhere. You know, he's only served two two years as the diplo- the ambassador to the United States before he got handpicked by by C to to take the position of Minister for Foreign Affairs. Yeah, and prior and then, to that he was protocol department. And yeah. then prior to that he was spokesperson. But he was vice vice foreign minister for a bit as well. Yeah. So yeah. he actually did serve his time, but he wasn't outstanding enough. Yeah. And then out of nowhere he got picked up. And then seven months later he's now, mm. you know, been dumped dumped, mm. essentially. Dumped unceremoniously. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and and I think you know one one and just to pick up again on these two points that uh, you guys have made uh, about the Chinese system is that uh, there's a saying, uh, there's a word in 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 Chinese. Uh, it's called Tangguo, meaning party state, and we have to remember the order of that term. It, you know, Tang party comes before state, so yep. it's a the state is guided mainly by the political party. So. So Wang Yi's position in, in, in foreign policy and foreign affairs within the Communist Party itself, in a way, outranks uh, the, the bureaucrat, who in this case would be Qin Kang. Yeah, so this reinforces the point that ultimately it's the party that's in charge, and also that we're dealing with a rising China that is a Marxist-Leninist state. state. Yep. Uh, now, then, of course, there's that second debate of does how much does that matter? I don't think anyone would say it doesn't matter at all. But at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, we need to retain a, a point of perspective in not necessarily jumping to conclusions. Right? Yeah, yeah, mm. that's right. I uh, totally agree here with the point being made by Nick that this actually falls well within the general pattern of a lack of transparency within the regime and its tendency to actually prefer to write that narratives way, way after all of this have occurred in terms of, you know, the terms it likes. But overall, I think we can all agree that this is still bad optics. And this is the reason why the media has picked up so much in this news. It's bad optics because if you're trying to sell, you know, China as the better alternative, supposedly to the U.S., Mm -hmm. then you're not supposed to have events that are, and personal shuffling that are as unpredictable as this. And it's highly unusual because what you see here is the coming of Wang Yi back to an old post and King Yong essentially being replaced with a predecessor is, is highly unusual, even in, 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 in China. And I think it speaks to the fact that um, because you don't have competition as such, as we see in liberal democracies, you really see here internal rivalries and factionalism that are characterized by personal ties to uh, to the party and to personalities within the party, such as Xi Jinping. But but I, I do agree with the point that immediately, what should we expect in terms of uh, Chinese foreign policy? I think not much. I think not much. Um, but on the other hand, one would like to think about this as well in terms of what does it do for China now that we see that, in fact, there is a flurry as well of uh, uh, American diplomats visiting. If we remember John Kerry 
meeting with Lee Kong and other officials, Blinken and Yellen visiting, and Kissinger meeting with Xi. Um, one could think that this is maybe um, China thinking of putting it into a more experienced, perhaps, the foreign policy portfolio being placed in the hands of a somewhat safer, maybe, a more trusted hand now that they're trying to re-engage, in a sense, with the United States? What do you guys think? I agree with June when he talks about them putting the portfolio back to Wang Yi because he is a safer hand. Everybody mm. in the foreign affairs community, the diplomatic community, knows what to expect from Wang Yi. He's been there long enough. He's overseen the rise of this whole wolf warrior mm. di- di- Actually, diplomacy yeah, you're right, you're right. and all that. But a counterpoint to June's uh, idea of it being a bad optics is how much does China really care whether it's bad optics or not? Like the system that China is trying to sell is not their political system. China is trying to sell this idea of common prosperity for the whole world. As long as you don't try to interfere in my business, I don't interfere in your business. We just work, you know, we just cooperate with each other on trade, mm. on, on things that help each other get rich. And then you stay out of my, my area, I stay out of your area, mm. you know? In that sense, the fact that the Chinese political system is opaque, that leaders or, or, or party members or, or bureaucrats who are in high positions often disappear for no good reason and su- either suddenly reappear like she did, she did after like two weeks or you know reappear in front of a corruption trial or something like that. It's, it's par for course. You know? They don't care what the world would think of their political system in that way because you know, it was like that article in that foreign affairs about Xi's security dilemma. His main aim, and he's already stated it very clearly, is that he wants to secure regime security for the Communist Party. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, mm. yeah. you're right. Well, I suppose, well, at, at the end of the day, I suppose this makes uh, Jin Gang the shortest serving foreign minister of China. If I were to be a bit more crude, I'd call him the list trust of Chinese foreign policy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, Luckily, no book has been written. Not yet. No, and yes. we have to change title. Yes, yes, <laughs> That's right. because that happened with Liz Truss. Somebody published a book saying the rise of Liz Truss, and then uh, the book had to be recalled, and the title changed to the rise and fall of Liz Truss. Um, but I suppose, in 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 the case of Wang Yi, which is the point that you made, he's a known commodity to a certain degree. He's known to be a safer pair of hands, and I think. What distinguishes the Qin Gang incident from the Boshi Lai incident that Nick was talking about to a certain degree is that this happened in the glare of the world. This was a man, who, this was Chinese, China's foreign minister. You know, apart from Xi Jinping, is one of the few figures from the Chinese governance system that people knew about, and his disappearance has certainly sparked that media foray. Yeah. At a domestic level, certainly, what it tells us is the system is very much shrouded in mystery, and and the opaqueness of the system does bring up certain questions of you know, what's really happening, but will it have that effect on the international stage as far as China's foreign policy is concerned? That's a, that's an interesting question by and of itself, I think. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was really quite interesting. Uh, in a way, it harks back to imperial times. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a way, um, imperial bureau- bureaucracies, there's a word for it they call yamen, you know, literally a red Vermil- a red door, right? Everything behind mm. happening behind the red door inside the, what the mandarins are doing, mm. you actually don't know. Mm. Uh, but you guys brought up uh, some very, very interesting points, particularly with 
the the unpredictability and uncertainty, right? So uh, does China really care and, you know, uh, that their system is different? I think there's something to something to be said, though, if we're going to take a more political economic view uh, from mm-hmm. it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, if you imagine uh, uh, business people going to visit uh, a particular minister or investors or mm-hmm. something like that, then from from that perspective, then it's a little bit uh, worrisome that you cannot, you know, predict or uh, that any agreement that you've done with this particular minister or ministry could be changed mm-hmm. immediately. Mm-hmm. And from an investment perspective, you know, of course you'll be worried, right? I mean, it makes uh, people worry about investing in China. And if you if statistics is correct and uh, that. Chinese investment investment into China has been dropping like in the last three years. Yep. Maybe maybe this is mm. an evidence of that that you know Xi Jinping's mm. uh, uh, administration has really changed the way China operates. And in that sense, uh, from an outside foreign investor's perspective, they'll be wary about it because what's the rule now? What how can I predict if I'm going to put in ten you know a huge amount of investment and would I be able to recoup it in ten years? Will this contract still be around in ten years? It's like this. Uh, remember when we, you know, read Mansur Olson's piece on this idea of stationary bandit and roving bandit idea, yep. right? The consistency and certainty. But of, I, I of don't things. think this. I don't think this is the first red flag for foreign investors, though. If you if you look at Xi's economic policies in the past three four years, you look at the crackdown on the tech sector. Then what followed that was the crackdown on foreign foreign companies that are investing in China. It's very clear that she has decided that first and foremost, regime security is important. I don't care what's the impact on the economy, on the private sector, as long as I can secure and ensure that, you know, the party control over the system is par- is is paramount. Well, I mean, yeah, I think uh, it's a good point. Um, and it, it kind of links up to another point, which is that regardless of one's kind of theoretical perspective on this, whether we believe liberal democracy or authoritarian regimes provide, um, at least in the short to middle run, uh, some degree of stability, however one stands in this debate, ultimately, at some point, Xi Jinping will have to step down. That's right. Mm, That's that's a a given. And when that leadership change does occur, the impact uh, of that change is going to be much more significant than in any particular change in a liberal democracy. So, for example, Trump to Biden was already a major change, but that will be nothing compared to the change that comes with Xi Jinping. That's right. And I think that point just needs to be underlined because it does suggest that, you know, there is something structural that is important in the power transition within the Marxist-Leninist state. That's right. And and, and it, it, again, highlights that theoretical perspective of, what we call the succession problem, mm. yep. right? The clarity yeah. of succession problem. Mm. And, and in non-democratic states, it is this guessing game, right? It is this guessing game that you have to deal with uh, that can mm. scare investors, can scare you know, uh, people who want to negotiate or deal with it, right? And in yeah. a, because of, in, a, in a way, when we talk about it, it's also you know, symmetry or asymmetry of information, right? The availability yep. Yep. of mm. information in an open mm. society allows us to be able to at least uh, buy insurance for this type of mm. uncertainty going forward. But, right. you know, in this case of China, where in Qinggang just 
wow, got pulled out. And then so Blinken just visited him and then he's out. So what's the deal there, right? So, right. Yeah, so, so right. a follow-up point, just to quickly, is that in this strategic competition between the United States and China, we're all very familiar with the well-rehearsed critiques of U.S. political system. Mm-hmm. But what we're seeing in this episode is the very clear, patent, transparent weakness of the Chinese political system. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, th- I think that that system has always been like that. You know, I, I don't think, I don't think China in all in its all its uh, history uh, has actually solved that problem uh, in a way. When you think of imperial times, from one change of dynasty to another mm-hmm. dynasty. But the system almost always seems the same, very hierarchical, very top-down, very mm. secretive, you know, mm. and, and Chinese... It's the confusion way. <laughs> or the confusion no, way. Yeah, the <laughs> way. But, that, but, but that's certain... The way, but, the way Southeast Asian is... Sorry, Nick, go on. Oh, no, sorry. But, but, that, but that element of uncertainty seems to carry on. It's, it's I mean, as he was talking about the, the, the political economy perspective, the Chinese economy is not on a great trip at the moment. It's been having some serious issues for quite some time. And from a political economy, from a political economy perspective, if I was somebody who was looking for that level of certainty, which takes place through a certain sense of iteration that it's tried and tested, it's going to be, it's it's going to go a certain way. You have those guardrails. What this instance perhaps tells us, in a way, is well, those guardrails carry on being moved, if not entirely removed, and that creates a lot of flux, I suppose, from a political economy perspective, certainly. Um, so. In that aspect, it's bad optics. But okay, Xi Jinping may not want to sell China as a political system. Mm. But, right. you know, the, the the economic conditions may be such that that consideration yeah. may not exactly be devoid. Yeah, it's an issue yeah. of credibility, right? It is. I it's think credibility of, is the word. Yeah, right. it's an issue of right. credibility. But, which but this answers Orson's question about why uh, observers should care. Yeah. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, one can have a view that you know, it's a purely transactional thing where the Chinese don't care about how they're perceived. But at the end of the day, it it is important. Um, yeah, I know, think it's not about rule. yes, yes. They they, yes. Yeah. they may not care, mm. but uh, the effect of yes. you know not caring is a a, mm. a marked stain on the credibility issues, yes. right? And and yes. for. From uh, from the perspective again, going back to borrowing from Irfan Nuruddin's work, you know, it's an issue of credible commitment and credible constraint. You know, yeah. Right. And so, similarly, right. for Chinese foreign policy, uh, since Xi Jinping took over, he may not care about the regional perception of uh, Chinese uh, expansionism in the South China Sea, East China Sea. But ultimately, what this has led to is a clear uh, balancing coalition forming, and whether he cares or not. This affects the latitude which Chinese foreign policy has yeah. moving forward. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, to uh, just to you know, in a way, to saturate to the to the boy band summer tours. But before that, I I, I was thinking that I was I was thinking that the I wouldn't be surprised that maybe a few weeks or a few months after, uh, we will see some Chinkang coming out of some sort of a trial. Mm. You know, I I wouldn't be surprised about that because when the dust has settled. Yeah, because it it couldn't. He, you know, I mean, couldn't just disappear without a story, right? I mean, at the yeah. very end of the day, uh, being so secretive creates fodder in the social mm. media sphere, not externally, mm. but e- e- you know, internally, in, 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 internally yes. right? Yes. So 
you know, mm. uh, I remember Nick, uh, one of your student uh, who wrote a thesis, an excellent thesis on Vietnam and the audience cost, right? So uh, yeah. even authoritarian systems and uh, like China, non-liberal systems, non-democratic systems like China, they also have to deal with audience costs. Yep. And in okay. this case, there's an audience cost. Mm. Otherwise, the rumor mill keeps on going. Mm. Well, so what happened, you know? So yeah. I'm, I, I yeah. think we might see Chin Kang being paraded in some yes. kind of a trial uh, yeah. in the next six months. And I think that's that's why the yeah. timing of the, the announcement that he's being fired from his post as foreign minister is actually calculated because exactly a week before they announced that he was being fired, you had The Guardian, you had CNN, you had a lot of these international media that were questioning where was he because he had already been missing for a month. And and it was also at that it was Excellent. also that that one week before the announcement that on the Chinese social media platforms that they started having that rumor about him having that affair with the Hong Kong news reporter. Yeah, so that once yeah. that started to break out, they the the party actually jumped into action and the machinery started moving. Yeah, yeah. You know, this raises mm. a, a really good point, which is that it wasn't supposed to be this way. That's right. Look That's back right. over the last 20, 30 years, That's right. we were told this story mm. that globalization is going to solve the problems of authoritarian states or solve the problem of the authoritarian state in the sense that, you know, this is classic modernization yeah. theory that yeah. as you have economic growth, this will then lead to political liberalization. Well, it hasn't turned out this way. So therefore, we get this problem mm. when we have these internal issues in China, it gets magnified and therefore we're even discussing this. Yeah. And, um, you know, it just mm. highlights this whole idea that related concepts like economic interdependence will then resolve conflict between states or that somehow that over time uh, more liberal democracies will emerge. It just simply isn't true. Yeah, well, for, for China, for, for sure, I, I think in my view, with regards to political modernization and, you know, liberalization as a result of that, I don't think China is still at that stage wherein they have that critical mass uh, that the mm. type of democratization that we saw in Taiwan, in South Korea, uh, and in other places uh, with the third wave democracy mm. will happen. I think China is still quite far from that. Uh, yes. So mm. when, when we in the West sitting and expecting China to uh, modernization theory to kick in, I think we missed a little bit the fact that that middle class is still quite tiny. You know, and if we... If we, you know, borrow from uh, lessons learned in history, particularly in the interwar years, where in in Europe you saw some countries turn fascist, right? I mean, the same issue when when you have a particular group there uh, that is still not big enough to demand whatever rights they think are there. So, you know, it's and and unfortunately, the reality that we're faced right now, we have this large country that is a significant actor. Mm -hmm. uh, that is trying to no longer uh, a status quo power, but a revisionist power in in one sense. That makes it much more difficult. But yeah, uh, that's the that's the thing. Let's let's switch to the next one because it's still again about China in a way and China's influence in the region. Now, this uh, very interesting uh, tours of uh, many important officials from around the world to the South Pacific and to this region. Anthony Blinken was just here in uh, football, sports diplomacy. Uh, and uh, uh, Lloyd Austin was in Papua New Guinea. Macron is traveling through the region as well. Albanese visited here. Uh, the timing was quite interesting with Albanese's visit because uh, Blinken was also here. 
in, in, in Wellington. So uh, what is this uh, tour that's happening with the Backstreet Boys uh, here in, uh, in the South Pacific? Uh, uh, what's all the attention, guys? Well, I, I guess it underlines a point that's been quite obvious for the last three years, which is that strategic competition and great power rivalry is right here, smack in New Zealand's backyard and that uh, we can really no longer close our eyes to it. And to be fair to the uh, New Zealand government in its uh, latest 2023 strategic assessment, which we talked about a little bit last mm. week, uh, the fact of the matter is, and just to quote uh, for clarity, New Zealand's security has been based on a stable and secure strategic environment, reinforced by geographic distance and isolation. These assumptions no longer hold true. The Indo-Pacific region is now the central theater for strategic competition, while geographic isolation no longer affords the protection it used to. And this is spot on. The, it you know, is. That the is authors spot on. of this report deserve a pat on the back more than that in highlighting that, you know what, we really need to kind of uh, return from our so-called holiday from history, which we talked about last week, <laughs> and wise up to the fact that... Uh, you know, uh, great power rivalry is coming at us, whether we like it or not. And uh, this really just puts the uh, spotlight on this. And uh, again, highlights the point which we discussed last week is that we've constructed a domestic norm, uh, domestic identity that's based on the idea that somehow there's going to be a relatively stable and peaceful and secure regional environment. And in fact, global secure uh, security uh, that would be much more abundant. It just simply hasn't come true. And so um, New Zealand's really got a, got its work cut out for it uh, moving forward. Mm. I think the question that sparks or came to my mind when I was thinking about this uh, summer tour, the boy <laughs> band summer tour, you know, or as we were saying, uh, the Glastonbury of the Pacific. The Glastonbury of the Pacific, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's why this timing? Like, it, it feels like we went through a couple of weeks and then suddenly you have, boom, Blinken, Albanese, Austin, Macron. I don't know who else is lined up after them, all yeah. visiting the, the area. It's mm. like, what, what sparked them? Because it's not like the Chinese diplomats were here previously. Mm. It's not like the, the Pacific Islands were, were, were making noise about, you know, signing any or getting any closer ties with, 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 with one or, or either side. So what sparked them? There's, there's, there's no real like kind of, you know, Kindle for for them. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a release of a new album. Mm. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Now that now that uh, now that Orson has actually mentioned it, it brings to mind an event that was that happened last year. You know, and that that the China venture in the Som Solomon Islands did in yeah. fact, in a sense generate a reaction from the West, a little bit delayed by a couple of seasons. But I think, I get the sense that this is what is happening, that for the most part, if you think about uh, all of these visits, Australia, New Zealand, and to a large extent, the, the PICs, the Pacific Island countries, have been in the geopolitical back burner in the Cold War, and for the most part of the post-Cold War era. But all of a sudden, the parts of it, which have been labeled elsewhere as the American backyard, and suddenly China has taken a keen interest in them. But this this boy band tour surely is is, is delayed <laughs> if you think about, you know, yeah. it as a reaction to that. Um, I mean, if it's, it's a reaction to the Solomon... On June's oh, point, sorry, sorry uh, Austin. Yep. 
we got to think what was the cat one of the catalysts for the Chinese uh, increase in activism in in the Solomon Islands, and that is AUKUS about a year before. Yeah. So yeah. that's one of the catalysts. So in a sense, you know, large the the larger external environment in the Indo Pacific is actually impacting into the Pacific Islands, which is, as we know, New Zealand's core area of of concern strategically. Well, for me, the boy band tour just encapsulates another thing from the Strategic Foreign Policy Review, and which was, and I remember the quote. It's, it's, and the quote was, "The Pacific is no longer strategically strategically benign." I think that just encapsulates it very mm-hmm. well. I, it's, it's not just the, the traditional uh, actors, as it were, who, who, who are taking an interest in the Pacific. India has been incredibly active in, in, in the Pacific for, right. for quite some time. They had the India Pacific uh, Islands Forum in June in Papua New Guinea. And Blinken was present even for that, and now he's mm-hmm. back in July. Um, and it's, it's. I think Nick's right. There's that element of geostrategic competition. The UK has taken, has suddenly woken up one day and realized, well, the Pacific re-exists, and let's try and sort of um, carve out an Indo-Pacific strategy and increase your presence in the Pacific. Um, and you can see that interest. I would also argue that beyond geostrategic concerns, there's also a competition for resources here. Yeah, I think I think one interesting thing is, and you guys picked it up uh, as well. Uh, what are some of the events that are stimulating these type of activities in our in our region and visits uh, by the band, so to speak? And uh, AUKUS is certainly one of them. I I would also uh, probably add into this Solomon Island agreement with uh, the China mm-hmm. head uh, that really sparked some uh, certainly mm-hmm. a lot of uh, alarm bells, so to speak. Um, in Frank Bainimarama, when he was still prime minister in Fiji, he had this police agreement uh, that he signed with uh, with yeah. Fiji. Yeah. That uh, that's the, that the current the current Sidiveni uh, uh, Rambuka is now yeah. kind of stepping mm-hmm. back from. So yeah. if you if you look at these activities and remember, uh, there was also talk about port access in Vanuatu. Yes. So yes. Uh, China port access in Vanuatu, these agreements, security agreements with Solomon Island, a police agreement with uh, Fiji. I think it's really sparking interest. Oh, I mean, all of a sudden, hey, how come these uh, uh, Mandarin pop bands are coming into South Well, the South US Pacific, now has its own you know? agreement with Papua New Guinea. Lloyd Austin just signed a security agreement with Papua New Guinea, again, in, along the lines of policing and in and, and presence of um, uh, forces and stuff like that. I, th- I think the port access with Vanuatu is actually quite important because it was just last week as well that Cambodia announced that they had, or not um, announced, but satellite images captured that Cambodia had finished building a uh, uh, dock large enough to house a Chinese aircraft carrier. Mm. So that mm. is China's first step into the South China Sea in terms of having a, a, a foothold, a base yes. there. Yes, yes. I, I think that uh, you know the reaction to Chinese foreign policy in in certainly the Solomon Islands is in a sense a indicator that you know on this issue, for example, New Zealand has advantages because of the sheer geographical distance from China that we're able right. to react to what's going on in South mm-hmm. China Sea, East China Sea, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and actually draw conclusions and then be part of the solution to the problem yeah. or the challenge yeah. of uh, greater external power involvement in the region. And in this case, uh, you know, I think there's some cause for optimism that, you know, that the alarm bell has been raised, that unless action is taken by many states, including New Zealand, 
that the region will be a lot less secure. So all these reports that we're seeing, particularly from MFAD, Ministry of Defense, over the last two, three years, are really having a salutary effect. Now, what we then need is, what, which is what we discussed last week, we need buy-in from the New Zealand public to actually yeah, fund right. yes. and resource right. this more activist uh, concern for security in our immediate region. Yeah, and, and, and just to reiterate that point again, last week we did say uh, the concept uh, in international relations when we talk about security is actually a multidimensional mm. concept. Mm-hmm. There's many layers. And what we're trying to say here is that, you know, uh, at the moment we probably won't see a military-type conflict mm. in that area. Mm-hmm. But it's more for the resource, right? It's more about the, mm. the the resources that are available in the exclusive economic zone of the South Pacific. And then, you know, do we dare say Antarctica uh, as well, right? So yeah. this competition for resource as economic development goes gung-ho in, in the Northern Hemisphere, for example, uh, and the search for resources always, always there. So when we talk about this buy-in from the New Zealand public and from from uh, from democratic voters, so to speak, we, you know, I think government has to pitch it yes. that it actually, at the end of the day, it affects their pocketbooks. You know that yeah. you know there will not be enough fish over there. We have coral degradation. You know, uh, there could be all sorts of nasty illegal activities mm-hmm. that are that yeah. are happening in this Absolutely. region that, in a way, then threatens threatens stability of, mm. you know, the region. Sure. I mean, one point, for mm. example, you can think about what's happened in South China Sea where you get oil oil dig- digging wells and so forth and, you know, being constructed. And, um, you, know, it, you know, New Zealand obviously cares a lot about the environment. And, you know, this is something, you know, who's to say uh, foreign states won't come in and get uh, contracts from local governments to actually start drilling and so forth. True, yeah. you mm-hmm. know? And of course, all the problems with deep sea mining as well, right? And yeah. you know, the the idea really is uh, we 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 really have to make uh, people understand that the blue economy and maritime security, you know, is yes. very very much related, and particularly for yeah. island states like New Zealand, yep. you know. Anyone to add more? On the point, yeah, and uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Jun. Yeah, that's a very good point made by by Alex in there. That oftentimes the blue economy issues in maritime states oftentimes take the back burner whenever we talk about geostrategic competition. And there's a need to really push this agenda forward to the policymakers and the public because, as we've reiterated in previous iterations of this this podcast, what makes New Zealand similar to the Pacific Island countries is we both don't have the capability just yet to fully patrol and fully secure our EEZs and enforce fishery laws and and protect what I call uh, legitimate economies, you know, as opposed to the less legitimate harmful ones, which are ongoing. But unfortunately, we don't know to what extent this is happening because we don't know. We, we cannot monitor not enough um, policies are in place and not enough investment is in place. That's true. So it's a hard job selling this idea for now. I was just thinking of taking it to a lighter note and talking about Macron in the Pacific. It's quite it's quite funny for 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 a man who who's been quite insistent insistent on on portraying the French as autonomous 
strategically autonomous, separate, not following the, the steps of America, not being an American watchdog. Allied, but not aligned, yes. I believe is the phrase. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that he's now doing this little tour of the Pacific on the on the heels of Blinken and, mm. and giving the optics that, you know, France is buying in as part of this Western coalition. You know, how 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 does that well what does that do for for, for French foreign policy? You know, they, they are he's gone to, mm. to China, he says, Oh, mm. we're not we're not it's not in France's interest to get in get involved in this kind of great power competition between two states and all that. But then now he's here and although what he says may not be construed as being critical of or overly critical of China or, or it might even you could even say argue that his speech was actually critical of both powers mm, yes he yes. he's still giving the image that he's he's walking the line with the rest of the western bloc yeah, well, yeah. i think i think well, that that title well, he did go ahead I think he went as far as using the term "new imperialism" That's right. in the yes. in the Pacific, which is to me is really interesting because, for one, you know, is this an admission of the evils of its own imperialism before <laughs> colonial <laughs> period? But also at the same time, well, you know what? If China is doing this, then you know there is also a renewal in, in interest in 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 among the French. In, in the Pacific, mm. which they haven't done so in half a century or so. And it's, the, the, the French are in a pretty interesting position because, as Orson had said, while they are pushing forward with this doctrine of allies, but also non-alignment is, well, they're in the G7, they're in the Security Council, they're in NATO, they're in the EU. Um, how much more mm. uh, allies and alignment would you want? Yeah, that's true. Well, the Macron speech was almost... I mean, I know I'm an Englishman talking about uh, the, the French president. Uh, so, so with that grain of salt, um, it was almost. I mean, the last time I checked, New, France was still very much involved in New Caledonia and French Polynesia. And for the French president to then come out and talk about imperialism was almost a bit comical, really. Um, but Macron always seems to have had that streak of walking, sort of his walking down a new track, as it were, continues to distinguish himself from the EU on his ease of foreign policy. Mm -hmm. And his first term was about um, the migration crisis in Europe, then yeah. it was on the issue of Libya, he sided with a different side entirely, he's spoken out against NATO on a different tune than the EU. It's almost yeah. as if he's trying to use that uh, distinguished path of foreign policy in a way, for, for that to be the outlet of this narrative of French strategic autonomy or French exceptionalism, in a sense. Uh, and you can see that in the way he adopts his positions on foreign policies, he's completely different in certain, yep. in certain regards from the EU in, 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 in quite a few areas. Yeah, we're talking about audience costs, and I wonder who is his audience for that type of uh, approach? I mean, certainly not domestic. I mean, in mm. a way, uh, uh, the French, uh, you know, with all the riots happening and this and that, I think... Well, in to an extent, of, yeah. diversionary theory. To an extent, I suspect. I mean, <laughs> diversionary it, I mean in a different way, his 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 tenure so far has been riled by protests. A constantly. lot of protests. Yeah. Yeah. You you recall his? Um, I, I struggle to characterize the quote, but he had this quote about NATO's brain death. Oh yeah. I mean, oh, you know, before that? any <laughs> other Western politician mm. making a similar type of statement. Just yeah. throwing it out there. That's right. That's <laughs> yes. right. That's right. Yes. I actually see a lot of parallel parallels between how the f or Macron conducts French foreign policy and the way 
Modi does in India. Yes. Both yeah. appeal to a certain nationalistic exceptionalism yes. Yes. as yes. a way right. as an outlet. Right. Absolutely. Um, and and that's that's one one of the reasons they seem to get along so well. I suspect is because there is that overlap in French and Indian foreign po- approaches to foreign policy, strate- strategic autonomy, yep. multipolarity, multi-alignment, uh, trying to become at least pivotal middle powers, if not great powers. And um, in that respect, um, also use foreign policy as that outlet for pent-up nationalism. Yep. Because that plays well back at home, certainly in India's case, but I suspect also in France's France, case. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's very prevalent in both instances. I think what we're seeing here is that uh, mm. you know, when we teach uh, classes in foreign policy and international relations, we talk about these two level games, right? Yes. So there's the international game, mm-hmm. there's the domestic game. And, and sometimes you, you, you see political elites, uh, they have an international objective and use the domestic strategy to achieve that international objective. Yes. Or sometimes it's the reverse, wherein they have a domestic political objective and use an international strategy to deliver yes. yeah. uh, that objective. So it's, it's, it's very, very interesting to see. So, I, I, you know, I mean, we, we can talk forever on all these topics. Uh, uh, for sure. But, uh, you know, for, for today, uh, you know, I just want to wrap up the, today's show and, uh, uh, and you know, hope you really enjoy uh, this conversation that we've had. We certainly had a blast uh, talking about uh, uh, Qin Gang's disappearance. I, I, you know, speaking of that, I remembered uh, uh, back in the 1990s uh, in the United States where uh, National Geographic had these tests where they were worried that uh, many American school children do not know, you know, do not understand the map a lot. So they went, they they went with this uh, program called uh, "What's in the uh, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego?" Yep. You know, so that that yeah. particular program. So if you put that in the tune of uh, what happened to the former Chinese foreign minister, you know, I mean, it'll be really quite funny too. You know, so so uh, and then we have this uh, Backstreet Boy tour uh, mm. here in summer uh, in in the South Pacific, the summer tour of the Backstreet yes. Boys. Yep. And more tours and another Glastonbury in the South Pacific, yep. I suppose. So in any case, uh, we'll wrap this uh, uh, talk up today. And uh, thank you again for listening to us. Uh, and we really appreciate uh, you supporting us in this, uh, in this journey as we chat about what's happening from our perspective. Thank you very much. 